Welcome back, everybody, to the Electric Grease Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sean McInerney. And this week, I'm talking with the legendary Paddy Styles. That's right, the Paddy Styles from Loose Moose, the Paddy Styles from Theatre Sports, and the Paddy Styles from Impro Melbourne. Paddy is fantastic. She is such an incredible teacher. I did a few workshops with her, and each one blew me away. She's such an interesting way of looking at improv, and she's so much fun to talk with as well. The first time I met Patty, I felt like I'd known her for ages. She's just such an easy person to talk to. So I was so excited to get her on the podcast. But without further ado, here is my chat with Patty Styles. How did you get into performing? Ooh, um, well, I was one of those people that as a child was always interested in the performing arts and really wanted my career to be in the arts. Uh, and when I was in high school, I kept asking my drama teacher and you know, my other teachers, how do I do this? And nobody really knew. They kept just saying, well, go to the university, go take the drama program. And I thought, yeah, okay, uh, uh, that seems to be the way that you have to do it. But then I was also reading up a lot of information and people were saying, no, you need to audition, you need to get an agent. And there seemed like two very distinct paths on how to start a career in the performing arts. So as I was contemplating all of this, I discovered that my high school had what was called a work experience program. Where basically uh, you say, here's my chosen field. And then they find an organization in that field that's willing to take on a student for a semester. And then you would, uh, basically your block of time in class would be going to that company and working at that company. Oh, wow. And would this be for like a term or for the year? Yep. For for a term. Ah, okay. Uh, And the beautiful impro gods and and (laughs) as fate played out. Uh, Loose Moose Theater was one of the organizations that had signed on to this program. Wow. That's my, was it the first time they were doing it or they had to be doing it for a while? Oh, gee, now that, I, I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember another, I don't remember another student coming through after me. Wow, so that was potentially the one and only time they were with that program, with that high school, and you were on it. That is mad if that's the case. Oh, I'll have to ask them. <laughs> Sudden, suddenly I feel like, you know, the chosen one. Um... <laughs> I was just going to ask, just to get an idea of the situation. So you grew up in Newfoundland, is that right? Yes, so I was, I was born in the States. I grew up in Newfoundland, and we moved out to Alberta just before I started high school. Got you. So you're in Alberta, and there there wasn't a huge mm-hmm. dramatic community where you were, no? No, I mean, my high school had a really great drama program, and we had excellent drama teachers, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but, you know, Calgary is, um, I mean, Alberta is, is a, a province of oil. It's built on oil, and there's an arts industry. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's vibrant, like in contrast with a New York or a Toronto or um, a Berlin. Calgary isn't vibrant. Calgary is active, definitely, and produces some great work. But I wouldn't say it's 
vibrant. It doesn't have um, all the rough edges to it as well. It's got the major, you know, opera house and the major theater and the major, you know. Um, so it was really interesting that Loose Moose came to life there. Uh, because it it really it was never accepted uh, by the traditional theater community in Calgary. Why, really? So they were a bit of an outsider no. then within the community. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wow. Uh, reviewers really didn't know what to do with us. Because uh, how do you review a show that tomorrow night could be completely different? Yeah, but I suppose I mean. You could you could review the actual performers themselves and you know the perform performance they're giving as opposed to the piece, which I suppose is what traditionally they would be reviewing to to a big, bigger extent. Absolutely, but that's I mean a reviewer should be saying, "Hey, here is my experience on this night." Mm. But a lot of reviewers uh, look at themselves as people who are critiquing the work, and therefore they have a higher education or you know. Uh, they, they, they're trying to prove their own ego of what they know. So they'll read the play beforehand and they'll do a lot of research on the playwright. And, and when you read the review, they'll say, you know, this designer is known for these types of work. And, and that's fine, but it doesn't tell the audience member who has X amount of dollars in their hand, who wants to go out and see something, what they're going to see. Yeah. And so those reviewers couldn't define the work they couldn't define Keith they couldn't define the genre I, I mean it was it was coming to life in front of them they didn't have the history I mean even now you know we're talking improvisation has you know a 50 60 year old history but at that time and in Calgary it had no history so the reviewers didn't know what to do with it and the loose moose was doing uh, improvised shows, so you know the birthplace of theater sports. Mm -hmm. It was doing children's theater uh, using improvisation within classic fairy tales or classic children's stories. Oh, wow. It was doing scripted work, uh, so we would do uh, some of Keith's plays, like They Come by Night or The Last Bird. Uh, he even did a show called The Secret Life of Doctor Watson. Uh, he did a show based on Mutiny on the Bounty, and we were using improvisation in developing the script and rehearsing and the um, and improvisation within how we interacted with the audience during the scripted performance. Wow, so that's a bit like Second City then. You're using improv to create content, but then also implementing improv into your show as well. Yes, the difference is that Second City was using improvisation to create content for sketch. Yeah. We were using improvisation to create content for a scripted theatrical piece. Yeah. No, but I just meant the process itself. I didn't mean the, you know, the actual content or the end result, but Yeah. That's mad. I never realized that was the case. So, you're what, 16, 17? You're in high school. You're going to Loose Moose. Yeah. Were you familiar with improv before? Or was this like a co complete crash course for you? We had gone and saw a show at the Moose. Uh, it was a high school excursion. Which uh, I can still remember there was a, a Dukes of Hazard scene that they did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
and I can remember uh, beautiful Kathleen Foreman, uh, an amazing improviser who sadly is no longer with us. She was playing Daisy Duke. Uh, Tony Titino, um, who now lives in Oslo, um, was in the scene. And I believe uh, Rick Hilton, another wonderful improviser who sadly is no longer with us, uh, was also in the scene. And, uh, and I remember that vividly. So when I went to, because uh, I, I had to do a job um, uh, audition, uh, a job interview to be accepted for the program. So I got all dressed and I went and, you know, I had to go through the proper job interview. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't realize that they were all going, oh, wow, she, she's dressed like she's got a CV. She's come prepared for this actual interview. <laughs> And they had no idea how to interview. <laughs> no, they were like, oh, we better take this seriously. The poor kid's taking it seriously. And I'm in, in the lobby going, oh, my God, I'm terrified. I've never been to a, a, a professional theater. Uh, oh, I love this already. It's such a wonderful situation. Yeah. And so you go in and like, did Keith interview you or was it one of the other actors that interviewed you? Or what was the process? Uh, it was the general manager, John Gilchrist. Uh, he interviewed me. Uh, Dennis Cahill was there. Uh, Dennis was the first person I met at Loose Moose. Keith was actually overseas teaching. I didn't know about Keith. I just kept hearing this name being said around the theater. So I had very little knowledge about improvisation. I knew nothing about the impact that Keith had on the global scene or his book. Uh, I didn't know about his working at the Royal Court. I had no awareness that he had worked with Angelico and, uh, you know, Pinter and Beckett. And (laughs) I was clueless. (laughs) I was clueless. Um, And I just kept hearing his name. People would say, oh, Keith said, or let's do this exercise. Do you remember when Keith was... I kept going, oh, this Keith guy sounds all right. I wonder if I'll ever meet him. <laughs> this enigma. <laughs> yeah. So when was the fateful yeah. meeting between you and Keith then? How far were you into your um, experience when you met him? I, th- I think I was there like about two months. Oh, wow. So you got and... quite a while before you actually crossed paths. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he was over uh, teaching in Denmark and Sweden and... Um... And I remember uh, there was a theater sports show. And uh, so once I started doing the work experience, I immediately fell in love with the company, Uh, the ethics of how they work, uh, how they create, how they worked as a unit on stage and off stage, the work that they were creating, the impact it had on the audience, um, just everything about it was excuse me, so alive, so vibrant, so filled with possibility and imagination. And all the performers just really valued each other. Um, And that doesn't mean that they didn't disagree or have individual opinions. They absolutely did. Um, And they would debate and discuss. But they all had the same creative objective. So their differences, their debating, all added to this incredibly rich creative process. And 
so I would go and watch every show I could, and I was volunteering and making popcorn and taking tickets. And <laughs> so one night I was there, and it was a theater sports show, and this guy showed up, and he was, he was wearing this long green winter jacket like a parka, and he was carrying this paper bag. And at one point he pulled a tissue box out of the paper bag, and I just thought, who who is this person? Where did they come from? <laughs> But I was, you know, setting up concession, and so I wasn't in the green room before the show. I was doing other things. And after the show, uh, there's a bunch of people sitting in the green room and having a couple of beers and chatting and laughing. And I was standing in the doorway just kind of basking in the glory of these amazing beings. And uh, this guy with his paper bag came and stood next to me. And he said, do you see those three people on the couch or those two people on the couch? I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to go sit between them. When I do, the woman is probably going to cross her right leg over her left and turn towards me. She might flick her hair. The fellow will probably do the opposite and turn away from me. He might leave. I'm not sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then he walked through the green room and he went and he sat on the couch and what he said would happen is exactly what happened <laughs> uh, <laughs> the woman crossed her leg she turned towards him she started playing with the hair the guy crossed the other leg shook a little bit in his seat and then got up and moved that is bizarre and as i was watching this going okay i've clearly been set up for some weird joke yeah. Someone said, hey, Keith, how was Denmark? And I went, oh, oh. okay, you're Keith. <laughs> and what, was, Got he just, it. was he just very, very good at reading people? Or was, was, did you just, could he just visualize stuff very, very easily? Or what, what do you think his trick was? Uh, I, d I don't think it's a trick. Keith is endlessly curious and fascinated by people and how people interact and how we function as people. Uh, I mean, he reads a lot of autobiographies and he's just fascinated by humanity and, and human stories. And really, if you're working in the performing arts, especially in theater, being fascinated by people, I think is a prerequisite. Yeah. Because that's where our material comes from. And if, if you're not fascinated by how people react, respond, relate, what we do and don't do, and why we do and don't do things, then how can you be a storyteller? It's very true, very true. So how long was it then before you thought, right, I want to get involved with this improv malarkey? Oh, uh, the minute I got the job at the Moose, I wanted to be involved in the company. And the minute Keith did that magic trick on me, I was like, okay, I've got stuff to learn. <laughs> I was in. <laughs> wow. So there, was, there was no like, oh, I, I can't do this. You were just all guns in. Um, I, look, I, I doubted whether or not I could do it. Absolutely. Um, I think most people, when they're learning improvisation, doubt their ability to improvise. Um, Really, what we're doing is doubting our ability to be good. <laughs> like, we're already projecting forward, can I succeed instead of, can I just experience? Yeah. 
Mm. Everybody can experience. You were born in, as an improviser. Everybody can be creative. Um, whether you can create on the spot in front of an audience within the context of a performance for the audience, that's when a different set of skills come in to play. Um, but it doesn't mean that people, everybody can improvise, everybody can create. Whether or not that creation is worth people paying for, this is where the divide happens for me. Um, so I didn't know if I would ever be good enough to be on stage. I didn't know if I would ever be good enough to, you know, be accepted as a performer in the company. But I definitely wanted to learn. And I was so inspired and intrigued by everything. Like, even as I'm telling the story now, I feel my chest open with just the freedom of that space. Wow. So it, it sounds like it was a very kind of electric kind of creative environment at Loose Moose. And obviously that was a lot to do with Keith and the teachers and the performers, you know, the, the environment they were kind of creating. But mm. so you go to your first class then and who was your first teacher there? Was it Keith or was it one of the other performers? I don't remember. Um... <laughs> so you, you don't remember your first teacher, but um, do you remember the first class, like how you felt when you were doing it? Well, the reason I don't remember my first teacher um, is because of the bizarre way I took my first class. Okay. Um, so the Loose Moose didn't operate on uh, a course structure where there's multiple levels and Impro 101, 102, Foundation, this, that. That, that bullshit didn't exist. Um, <laughs> And I'm calling it bullshit because I, I actually, I, I really have a, a love-hate relationship with that structuring of improvisation. Um, I was there volunteering. I was making popcorn. And Dennis Cahill came out to the lobby and he said, hey, Patty, do you want to come in for the pre-show class? Oh, wow. So it was very impromptu. And, and I went, e e e yeah. And he went, Cool, come on in. And that was my first class. I love that. So my first class, I was in a room with Dennis Cahill, Tony Titino, Frank Titino, Jim Curry. Um, these are the people who created Theater Sports with Keith. These are the people who founded Loose Moose. I was on I was in a room with, you know, the highest level of the company and all different levels. They were like, if you were looking at beginner, intermediate, senior, everybody was in the room because it wasn't divided. You were improvisers. Everybody was learning. Everybody's just at the place that they're at. We all learn from each other. It didn't matter to any of them. I had never done it. What an intro to improv, though, being in an environment like that, you know, with. You know... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. And. Obviously, doing a class with people of that experience, you know, be it they're new or be it they've been doing it a long time, that must have been hugely intimidating. Or did you just find it just so exciting? It was intimidating because of 
how I viewed it, that I went, because I put people on pedestals. I was putting people into categories. I was putting people into status. Got you. Yeah. From well, their I... point of view, we've asked you to come in. You're welcome. Let's play. See, that that's what improv is all about, though, isn't it? It's just a yeah, collaborative, fun, joyful experience. And I think a lot of times we can just put a lot of the barriers and pressures on ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. But then companies can use the barriers and pressures to uh, kind of set up more capitalistic structures and control students. Yeah, which goes back to what you said earlier about, you know, the love-hate relationship, I suppose, with the, you know, having the class structure and the 101s and the foundation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's a love-hate because I understand that a company needs to function as a company. And so companies need structure and within the structure, people need KPIs and, you know, uh, aims and goals and there's fiscal responsibilities that need to happen. I, I get that. but. You know, when, when you look at, you know, Spolin or you look at Close or you look at Johnstone or you look at Ken Campbell or Paul Sills or, you know, it, any of these teachers, they they weren't they weren't saying, hey, impro should be structured like school. They all spoke out against traditional education systems <laughs> and how traditional education actually impacted people's ability to be creative and free thinkers and open and how it actually destroyed creativity and their games and exercises were ways of compensating to get people back to the natural creative state we had before we went into those authoritarian structures wow you know i've never thought about it that way before but that makes so much sense so why are we f giving over to that? Yeah. There's other ways. So, so how did it work at Loose Moose then in terms of the training? Was it more collaborative kind of workshops and you just attended them and you'd learn from your classmates as well as your teacher? Well, like I said, you know, I went to this class. and So every Sunday night before theater sports, the whole company came together and we did a class with Keith if he was in town. And if Keith wasn't in town, someone else would lead the workshop. So it was once a week, we would do this hour long class. And we would usually focus on something. Either Keith had an idea he wanted to try or an experiment, or maybe there was something that didn't quite work in last week's show and we would do that. There was no, now we do blocking, now we do accepting, now we do this. Yeah, it was we're we're improvising, whatever we're doing, we're improvising and whatever arrives gives us the opportunity to talk about other areas of improvisation. Then after that happened, we would have a pre-show meeting and in the pre-show meeting, uh, usually Dennis ran it. Um, and he would say, OK, we need captains for the 10 minute game. And if you wanted to give a go at captaining, you put your hand up. Um, he'd say, okay, who's going to lead the free impro? Someone would put their hand up. Who wants to be captains of the Danish? Who wants to be captains of the second half? Great. Okay. And then we'd go through other areas of, you know, lighting and so forth. He'd go, great. Okay. Team captains, pick your teams. 
get the information to the host, and we've got, you know, 45 minutes till showtime. And then people would go around and ask, hey, do you want to play my team, or would you like to play tonight? And so it was very invitational, just like my first class, I was invited in. So immediately I'm given a vote of confidence. Yeah. People have said, hey, we want to play with you. Come on in. Let's give it a go. So you're you're kind of effectively learning as you go because I mean an hour a week isn't a lot of time you know time in terms of training so you were kind of learning through doing a lot of the time more than anything would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Along with theater sports in that hour of training, we were also creating plays. We were also creating children's theater. We were also doing performances in the park. We were also doing parades. So we were doing sketch writing and right. So it was a functioning theater company. Mm. So we had that one hour a week class, but I was up at the moose seven days a week doing something. That must have been so exhilarating though for, you know, you know, somebody wants to get into theater at a young age to be that immersed in so many different processes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Improvisation was underneath everything we did, right? So the decision-making process, how we worked together. Um, if you were if you were working on a children's show, you'd be going, okay, whose story is this, and why would the audience want to watch it, and how does this impact them, and what is what are we actually creating here, and how do we do this, and um. You know, like the rehearsal process, we would use a lot of improvisation games within the scripted work. So all the stuff on status and pecking order, that would go into our children's plays because a lot of the fairy tales will have, um, you know, a monarchy. So playing status is really important with endowing the characters in the monarchy. But we would turn it into a game. So we might do status with balloon hitting or with taking each other's hats off or um you know we, we would we would ask the kids their opinion when a moral decision needed to be made and wow. whatever they answered we would have to work it in with what we were doing in the play so storytelling and creating theater was paramount in everything we did and then we had the tools of improvisation which helped us to create theater, to create these stories. That's amazing. And that must have been such a wonderful experience, you know, improvising, creating content and delivering that content to such a wide audience as well. You're not just performing to, you know, paid customers, you're performing to children, you're performing to such a broad demographic. Absolutely. But that's why it really tunes your narrative skills Mm. because you go, ah, right, children's theater is is comprised differently than uh, a Shakespearean play. Why? What, what's the difference between these stories? Outside of, you know, I am a pentameter and so forth. Mm. Let's look at the, because really, Romeo and Juliet could be a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. Right? So what makes it different? Okay, there's, you know, death and murder. But, yeah, you look at Brothers Grimm, there's a lot of death and murder. So... <laughs> So what's the difference, right? Uh, and the difference is how the characters are reacting and 
and what you're trying to get from the audience, what you're trying to give them, the experience you're trying to give them. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just curious, like, what in this time, you know, because you're obviously this is over a period of years now, we're kind of talking in terms of all the shows you're involved in, you know, the training. What were the kind of key mm. things that you learned? Like, what was the, the, the key elements that stood out to you? Oh, oh I don't know. <laughs> um, because it's it's just you know each each thread each skill has just kind of woven together into the fabric of who I am as an improviser um the only time i really think of it is when i'm talking with other improvisers who uh, either don't have any theatrical background or any awareness of theater or theater space or um have been taught in a very a confined structure where they they haven't been challenged to think um, or to create or or to, or to improvise freely. They've they've been channeled into one way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that that way that form is a bad or good form. Um, what I'm saying is that they've learned that at the expense of being opened or having the possibility of learning all these other things. Yeah, which it sounds like was such a joy for you because you were just developing so oh. many skills at one time and having so Absolutely. much exposure. Yeah. I mean, we were doing stilt walking and <laughs> working with masks and we did juggling. And I remember at one point we were trying to learn how to do a – a three-way dive roll pattern and uh we I, I learned magic tricks and um key we were doing a play and, and i had to make a pig's head and i was given like chicken wire and said there you go <laughs> make one um you know when we did mutiny on the bounty we we turned the whole stage into the the bridge of a boat and we removed the curtains and we had ladders that came down and and you could go into, you could open the trap door and go down under the stage and up through another trap door and you could climb up the ropes and onto the crossway and um, it, everything was a possibility and that was it. Like improvisation creates a completely different form of theater, a completely different experience. And it's something that, that even if you're using Sing it in, in, in a scripted piece or a children's theater piece or a sketch. There is a vibrancy with improvisation. There's an immediacy. There's an interconnectedness that that it, it like it flips an um, an electrical switch in the room. And even though I might have lines that I've learned, those lines could be said differently every night and if people are listening and they hear the difference i've said this night it makes this performance about this night and as improvisers we're trained for that we're trained to go hang on you normally look at me when you said that line but you said i love you and you looked away so my response tonight is different 
Yeah. Because your wording, your your delivery was different. And that means everything has that bubbling energy underneath it. I love that. And I that love. that's the present moment. That's living in the present. And when we lose that, I don't know, we're not really improvising. We might be making stuff up, but are we improvising? Yeah, because, you know, I I, I spoke with um, Dave Pasquese, and he said mm. exactly the same thing. You know, uh, for him, improv is all about, you know, listening, hyper, hyper listening, and, you know, mm. really taking in every little thing that your scene partner is doing because the, the way they're carrying themselves, the way they look at you while you're speaking as much as when they're speaking informs you so much and you need to be taking all that stuff in every moment mm. in order to react truthfully and, you know, to, to improvise essentially. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just listening with your ears. It's listening with your eyes, with your body. It's, it's seeing the possibility of the space between you, the objects on stage, the lighting, the temperature in the room. It's being aware of the audience. Are they leaning forward? Are they leaning back? Do they look comfortable or are they uncomfortable? Everything is an offer and every offer has possibility and potential. I couldn't agree more. That is, that's just amazing. That's so, so true. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, Patty, what was Keith like as, as a teacher? Because obviously you had a bit more interaction with him as it went on in the kind of a class structure. Um, what was that like? You know, what did he focus on? Uh, Keith is curious, playful, mischievous. Um, it, it was always a joy to be in the room with him. Um, when we were working on something, you know, sometimes he'd go, okay, let's try this. And we'd do it a couple of ways and he'd go, nope, that's shit, forget it. Okay, let's try something else. <laughs> and what was it like for you as a student? Was that frustrating or was that kind of like, oh, cool, let's just, just roll with something else? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, great, good, move on. Um, because, because one of the, one of the things that I really valued about the Lose Moose experience uh, so much, but one of the things that I've realized looking back, the Lose Moose was an incredible group of individuals, all the moosers and every moose there individual and everybody has their own ego and their own self. But when we were working, the ego took a back seat. And so you admitted failure and you embraced failure and you had a laugh at failure. And if something wasn't working, it wasn't working. That's okay. And if you're on stage and the scene isn't working, you get horned or the lights had come down or, you know, a sound cue would come on to tell you to get moving <laughs> or so Keith going, no, that shit, forget it. Move on was normal because if the inspiration isn't there, just working it when it's not there is attachment and ego. It's like, let's just, let's try something. If it doesn't work, let's move on and try something else. That's okay. And that was Failure that, is an opportunity to learn. And that was very much from the direction of Keith, was it? That was kind of his mantra. 
Yeah, I mean, Keith would, you know, he was constantly giving permission and looking for ways to inspire us. Um, and it, I look back and there's a lot that I realize now that I go, oh, you little bugger. <laughs> you did that because you wanted, oh, look at you, right? So he would say things as he walked by and you'd go, what? And then years later, you'd go, oh, right. Um, Can you give you an know, example? So, for example, yep. <laughs> Great uh, minds. <laughs> I, I was uh, watching a theater sports show. I was standing in the, we had this uh, stairwell that you went up into the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you were in the show, often we would stand in the stairwell because the audience couldn't see us, but you could watch the show. And then when it was your turn, you could run around and get in position. Anyway, I was standing there. And Keith came and he stood next to me and we were watching the show. And then he leaned over and he said, why do women feel they need to improvise like men? Don't you understand women play the morality in improvisation? And I went, what? (laughs) Like in my brain, I went, what? And then he walked away. Right. And I, at the time, I just went, oh, yeah, crazy Keith, whatever. But then I was directing and I was watching the choices that were happening in the scenes. And then I understood that because it was a male dominated form, a lot of women were coming on stage feeling they needed to mimic or replicate what men were doing. But in the scenes, a lot of the men wouldn't deal with the moral content. They wouldn't deal with, um, so say, for example, there was a scene, they robbed a bank and they shot a guard. They wouldn't go, hang on, we just killed someone. They'd be off and running with the money. Why? So it was more adventure-based. And yet, when I was watching women on stage, Moral content would often arrive where the consequences of decisions were coming into play. Now, Keith wasn't saying that, you know, one gender or this gender. What he was saying was, as a woman, like he was talking to me, so Patty, as a woman, don't feel you need to mimic them. Because you bring your own uniqueness to the stage. And what you bring, we need in stories. Wow. That's that's a really interesting observation. Because I've never actually kind of coined that or noticed that myself. So that's really fascinating. And, and would he do stuff like that quite often? Kind of point out, you know, if you were going a little bit off track, he'd get you back on. But he'd do it in kind of a cryptic way. Is that what you're saying? Yep, sometimes cryptic, sometimes straight. Um, So I went through a period of time where I was avoiding doing any narrative. And it was when, um, so when when you play theater sports, your your first night on a theater sports stage, you were invited to play. So someone that was captaining would say, hey, would you like to be on my team for tonight? You'd be like, oh, uh, okay. And you had no idea. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? Like you're going to the show, you're doing the class. You don't know if you're going to perform that night or not. Yeah. And then someone invites you and you've got half an hour to panic about it because <laughs> you're about to go on stage. <laughs> and then after you do the 10 minute game for a while, you get brave enough to kind of put your hand up and say, maybe I'll captain. And then someone goes, yeah, you can captain. It's like, ooh, ooh, oh, right, okay. So there was all this kind of uh, positive reinforcement that people would invite you, and which it just made you feel good. It, it wasn't a cold casting decision and everybody gets equal amount of shows and you're at this level, so that means you perform here. It was about people being inspired to play with you. Yeah. And if someone enjoyed playing with you, then they'd invite you to play, which was really great. Um, where was I leading? Oh, so when I started playing in the Danish game, which is kind of the, the last part of the first half of theater sports, which is kind of intermediate level. Yeah. Now I'm on stage with, you know, improvisers that I think are incredibly skilled. Right. I'm on stage with, you know, a Jan Derbyshire or, you know, a Dave Duncan or and I'm like, oh, boy, I've got to keep up. And my way of keeping up was I'll go into passenger mode. I'm going to be really supportive. I'm going to be really positive. I'm just going to support everything, accept everything. Yeah. But I wasn't really helping. And what I was doing was wimping, and I was avoiding taking any narrative responsibility. Because you weren't initiating and at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Keith saw that I was avoiding this. So for weeks, uh, you know, we'd be doing theater sports, and, and someone would say, we challenge you to the a two-on-two die game. And Keith from the judge's chair would go, I think Patty would like to be on in this from her team. <laughs> so he was just kind of going to poke in you the whole time to kind of get you out of your shell. Yep. He would just keep putting me in positions where I would have narrative responsibility and I'd be supported. He didn't let me hide. He didn't let me avoid. He didn't let me run away from it. And if he hadn't done that, I, I, you know, I, I hope eventually I would have developed those skills. But it was him seeing that and going, yeah, okay, well, let's have Patty do this monologue. Okay, let's, um, I think Patty will do that. She's like, why are you picking on me? And he wasn't picking on me. He was just going, you can do it. That's amazing. But that's that's a fantastic mentor to have, though, is trying to get you out of your shell, you know, pushing you out of your comfort zone to try and develop you as a performer. Like, that's exactly what you want. And he has done that for me as a student. He has done that for me as a teacher. Uh, sometimes when I watch him teach, he'll come over and whisper to me what he's doing or he'll say, do you notice the student? Have you noticed their body language? Um, he, he's done it to me when I directed my first kid show, he said, you know, come over and we'll talk about the structure of the show. And so I went over with all my notes about Robin Hood and I was like, ah, oh, I want to do Robin Hood. And I've got all the story laid out. And he said, so why should, 
children care about taxes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and my brain just exploded because I went, uh, well, you're right. Why should they? Oh, my God. How do I tell this story? <laughs> <laughs> oh, why? Um, but he's he's continually done that for me. Um, and for others. And part of it is just kind of how he sees the world. He does see the world through a different window. And and it's a glorious window. Um, yeah, working with working with Keith um, is a great pleasure. It sounds it. It's it does. It's no surprise because you know he's such a world-renowned practitioner of improv. You know, in terms of directing, teaching, mm. and you know, and it, it it just I I've never had any interaction with him, but I've always heard incredible things. But you know, hearing about your relationship in particular, it's just he sounds like a fascinating individual to be involved with with improv. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was about six months ago, seven months ago. There was a few of us. Uh, we were on Zoom with him and we were doing some impro games and he was watching and giving us feedback. And, you know, my, my first scene we were doing, um, I think, a word at a time um, or a monologue or something. And, and almost the first thing I said, he went, why are you avoiding the action? And I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm totally avoiding the action. <laughs> That must give you such nostalgia, though, because, you know, you're so experienced yourself, Patty, that going back to, like, maybe your early days of improv when you have those little moments. I love it. I love it because I, I, what I've experienced, I've been very fortunate to experience, but it's such a small percentage of the possibility of this incredible form. Mm. And... I crave being challenged. I crave uh, having honest um, conversations with colleagues where I can assess my work and reflect on my work through feedback. Um, I, I crave going on stage and being able to push boundaries and to explore. Um, I desperately miss the moose, desperately. And I know I'm being nostalgic for a time and a place and an era. Um, yeah, but the, that magic exists in improvisation, regardless of the combination of people. What's changed has been in the period of time from, you know, me stepping out of high school to now improvisation has become an industry. I, I want to touch on theatre sports a little bit because for those, for anyone listening that's not familiar with it, uh, theatre sports, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Patty, if I describe it horribly. But, um... <laughs> I will. I'm listening to every word. <laughs> so... Theater sports was developed by Keith Johnson. He went. To, he saw a, a live wrestling event, and he loved the pageantry and the excitement of wrestling. And he thought it'd be fun to link that with the joy and spontaneity of improv. And he merged it, and it, what came forth was theater sports. And with theater hmm. sports, there's a competitive element to improv, but it's all for the fun of the the show, as opposed to you know actually 
genuinely competing and there's judges there's participants there's points uh it's a it's a big fanfare yeah. kind of event and how old was theater sports when you got involved in it patty was it relatively new or is it fairly well, well established no it was still relatively new it it felt like it was hugely established uh because when i started and, and this is a really kind of funny thing when i started uh i was kind of third generation but now because there's so many generations suddenly i'm first generation somehow which <laughs> is very honoring so one of the things about theater sports that people misinterpret is that it's not an actual competition mm. so theatrically we're using the elements of competition to engage the audience. When an audience goes to a sporting match, they're engaged, they're emotional, they're crying, they're elated, they're screaming, they're on the edge of their seat. When they go to theater, they fall asleep. <laughs> this is a problem. Um, they can go and watch Othello and watch Othello strangle Desdemona and be snoozing. This is a problem. Why aren't they engaged? Why aren't they feeling? Why aren't they emotionally attached? Why don't they want to stand in their seat and scream at him, don't? They don't. So theater should inspire the audience's imagination and connect with their emotions, connect with them. It, it's an experience that we're sharing in the room, like sport. So theater sports is trying to bring that into the theater, <clears throat> where we use our improvisation to create stories and moments that the audience will remember, but we use the element of sport to engage them in that. Mm -hmm. So they can scream and yell at the judges. They can applaud they can they're involved in the show it is not a real competition um and quite a few groups misinterpret that and then they start having real competition and that changes the nature of the work you know because collaboration and cooperation and competition they're all different things yeah yeah absolutely and just to go back to you starting in theater sports, mm. what was that like? Was it daunting or were you like, yeah, loving this? Uh, I, ju just absolute joy and love. And uh, it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. You never knew what the hell was going to happen. <laughs> um, well, you, d you didn't. I remember yeah. one night I was on stage and a swing lowered from the ceiling. A swing. Why? They had rigged a swing and, and this thing just came down. <laughs> and I got to swing and I was swinging over audience members. <laughs> oh, my God. We Sorry. had a, a boat. Well, on the stage, I'm assuming, yeah. A boat. <laughs> not, not above like the a audience. <laughs> yeah, a little... A li no, no, no. There was just this little mini boat that you could use, like, do the Fred Flintstone, use your feet to, to move it around. So we're on stage in this tiny boat, 
sailing around the stage as we're making this thing move and go different directions. Wow. Because <laughs> that's where you and I first met, Patty, was when you were uh, checking out the theatre sports team I was on in London. And uh, it was fantastic, the direction mm-hmm. you gave us. And it was, it was really eye-opening because I think we fell into that trap of we kind of fell into one kind of pattern with it whereas you could have opened our eyes to the potential and how like you can do pretty much anything with it and it was it was a really fun experience and that was my first time kind of doing a a workshop with you and I absolutely loved it and it was great and I think what I loved about theater sports as well was it was the collaboration as you mentioned earlier you know you were working together with everyone so you might not necessarily even be in a round with you know two teams but you're still helping with different elements of what they're doing or contributing towards it. And that was just a really fun experience to be performing with that many people in that big of a show. Yeah. When, when we play theater sports, it, it wasn't you played on your team. You were part of a cast creating a show. So one week I would host the show. Or the next week I would stage manage or, you know, I would captain a team or I would run the free impro. You did what was needed because you were part of a cast. And every week this cast does this show and we're all responsible for the quality of that show. So when a scene is happening, the lighting, the sound, the host, the judges, the teammates, and the opposition are all looking for how do we inspire each other? How do we help this story? For the whole show, you're doing that. Yeah, and I think for the audience, it's such an experience because it just feels like improv is happening all Mm. around you as opposed to just like with the performers on the stage, you know, and it's just such a fun atmosphere. Absolutely, but... How many times have you seen or read in a company's promotional material? Improvisation, we make it up in the moment. This show will only happen once, never again. A once in a lifetime experience, completely unpredictable. And then you go and see their show, you see two shows, and they're almost exactly the same. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, too often, unfortunately. Yeah, well, there's a problem there. And and the easy solution is either change your publicity or practice what you preach. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And when did you get into teaching, Patty? Were you with Lucemis for a long time or was it relatively early on that you started teaching yourself? The first class I taught, it was at Lucemis. Uh, Dennis and Deborah. So Deborah uh, Yahtzee became the general manager after John Gilchrist left. Uh, they asked me if I would teach a youth program, if I would teach um, 10 to 12 and 13 to 15 year olds. And I was like, yeah, sure. I, I, I don't know what to do, but let's try it. <laughs> um, which was kind of the, the general moose thing. Yeah, it sounds like you know, it. Yeah, just like, I love it. 
<laughs> the same thing with here's the chicken wire, make a pig's head. <laughs> okay, um, we'll see what happens. Um, so I I chatted with Keith and I chatted with Dennis and a couple of other people about teaching and and I remember Keith saying, well, it needs to be relevant to them. You know, there's there's no point going in and saying, okay, here's the theory of blocking and improvisation is an art form and they're 10. They don't care. <laughs> so, you know, their parents have sent them there. You know, either the kids want to be in theater or their parents want them to be in theater. Um, but what's relevant to a 10-year-old? What's relevant to a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, right? And, and that's interaction, human interaction, because they're trying to figure out the world around them. Yeah. And so use improvisation so that they can express themselves and tell their stories. And, and it was amazing the, the political stories that they wanted to get into. Really? You know, um, Oh, politics, religion, um, morality, environment. Um, yeah, their kids are pissed off with what's going on in the world. That's mad. You'd never think that. You'd think it you was know? just going to be kind of wanting to do like cartoon characters and things like that. You'd never think it'd be that heavy at that age. They're paying attention. They, they're picking up on what's going on. Yeah. Um, they've still got a healthy dose of, of fantasy, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's, there's stuff that they're dealing with, and they don't have an outlet for it. Um, now, obviously, you know, I'm not going to go, great, okay, let's get into, you know, doing something <laughs> really cutting edge. because it. It has to be proportional and relevant to their experience, mm. to what they're expressing, and to their age. Absolutely. You know, but again, you look at fairy tales. Come on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you especially know, the older ones. They're horrendous in parts. Yeah, because they're trying to teach and prepare children about the world. They're trying to give them the skills to to deal with society. Um, but even just having someone say, what's relevant to the students? That explains a lot about my experience with you as a teacher, Patty, because you are very observant as a teacher from what I've seen. Like you, you will really take in what's going on with your class and you really address each individual class member, which is very rare. Like a lot of people would teach as an ensemble, but you're really teaching each person as much as the ensemble. And that was quite like quite inspirational to me because I felt like I got so much from just doing one workshop with you. Thank you for that. No, no, um, genuine, that's true. I, I, I thank you for that, but I, I feel a sadness that that's not the norm. Yeah, I, I I feel like when you do courses, sometimes you're, you, the teachers are trying to teach pe the people, but they've also got to get through the curriculum. 
and it's hard uh-huh. to juggle both do you know what I mean and it goes back to what you were saying before about structures and classes and that kind of thing but what what's what do you focus on as a teacher though is there anything you always have at the front of your mind that you want to get over to a class um Keith once said to me <laughs> again another Keith moment um <laughs> that the first offer that a teacher has is their students. And this came up when um, I was working for him as his personal assistant. And um, there was a university that wanted him to teach. And they said, well, we need his curriculum. I said, okay. So I went to Keith and said, hey, Keith, you know, this university needs your course outline, your curriculum. He said, well, I can't give them one. Why? I said, oh, okay. He said, I don't have one. I can't give them one. I said, okay. So I contacted the university and I said, well, there isn't one. Oh, I bet they love that. And they said, oh, <laughs> right. And they're like, well, no, there, there needs to be one. He has to have a, a curriculum before he can teach here. And I went back to Keith and went, oh, look, they really want one. Apparently, you have to have one or you can't teach there. And he said, how can I teach improvisation if I haven't met the students yet? How can I say what they need? The first offer is the students. Until I meet them, I don't know where I'm starting. I know what I'm teaching, but I don't know what that group needs. See, that's so profound in terms of teaching improv and that that's incredible way of looking at it and it's is that the truth yeah so is that something you carry with you then before you when you meet each class that's something Absolutely. you're trying why wow, that explains so much about your workshops because they are incredible like i've done two with you now and each one was just fantastic um mm. Sorry, I was just going to ask, where did the little book of horrors come from, by the way, in your classes? <laughs> ah, from scenes that matter. Um, so along with, you know, your students are your first offer. Um, the other thing as a teacher that I'm watching for is, is fear. Because really, um, the, the obstacles between a person and improvisation is fear. Mm-hmm. And everybody has their own fear and different types of fear. And it can be a small fear or a massive fear. Um, So whatever I'm teaching, I'm aware of those two things. You know, my students are the offer. What do they need? Mm -hmm. And looking for fear in the room. Um, Where is it showing? How is it arriving? So if I'm doing a... um, a more kind of sculpted course, for example, Scenes That Matter, I, I know what I want to do. And what I want to do is introduce a different type of content to students. And my reason for that is there is so much light entertainment and content that actually means nothing, says nothing, And it's okay to do light entertainment. It's not my favorite, but absolutely it has its place. Mm. But the impro world is so saturated with it. 
that there isn't space for anything other. And I don't believe that that lack of space is because students aren't interested in it or audiences aren't interested in it. I believe that lack of space is because people aren't taught to use improvisation as a tool and they're not shown the possibilities of what you can create with improvisation. So that comes back to Loose Moose. When we were doing plays, we would be tackling some heavy themes or like, you know, Keats play The Last Bird. Man, there's a lot of heavy stuff in that play. Um, and even when we were playing theater sports, we were looking for scenes that also had a truth or a morality or trying to get something political or something human on stage that the audience would think about after or, or ponder or reflect on. And that was a driving force. Uh, I remember one theater sports show at intermission. Keith was angry at us because the show was too funny. Wow, really? Yeah, because he said, "What? what's the point? This is all light entertainment. Nobody's going to remember this tomorrow. Don't you have anything you want to say? Isn't there anything as an artist you want to express? You know, are, are you just wasting people's time with, you know, candy floss? Wow. But a lot of improvisers don't have that. They don't have a director who says, okay, we're going to put you in a challenging story. And we're going to take care of you. The content, the content is dangerous, but the improvisers are always safe. And we're using our skills as improvisers and our awareness and our technique and our ability to look after each other, to tell the story that needs to be told. But no performer on stage is ever at risk. This was a part of my impro upbringing. And a lot of improvisers don't have the opportunity to try or experience or learn how to tell difficult subjects in a way that's safe. So that's why I created the Scenes That Matter workshop to give people an opportunity to think, to experience, to explore, to try something other. It's okay if you don't like it. It's okay if you never do it again. Just recognize it's a possibility because maybe one day you'll have a thought and you go, I want to do dot, dot, dot. And you'll know that that's also welcomed in the impro world. So the little book of horrors is my way of trying to playfully reduce stress in the room or fear in the room by just acknowledging that the stories in that book that I've taken from the media are horrible. But in the room, we're, we're theater practitioners creating stories based on this. Othello is horrible. Hamlet is horrible. Macbeth is horrible. Romeo and Juliet is horrible. Henry V is horrible. I remember being in the workshop and when, it, when you took out the book and you, you gave us the news articles, I remember initially I was like, 
what the hell is going on because <laughs> was, it was so different to anything I'd done in a workshop before. But then once mm. we started doing it and the scenes were happening and there were these beautiful moments and these really truthful, powerful scenes, then I got it. Then it kind of clicked and I was like, oh, okay, this makes far more sense. <laughs> and I, I got into it. But it's true what you say. I mean, previous to that, I never would have been in a scene that had something heavy to it, like someone dying of terminal illness or, you know, um, I remember there was one where a mother was visiting her daughter who was in prison, who was still obsessed mm. with Charles Manson and, you know, things like that. That I, I, I've never been to a show and seen scenes like that and I'd never performed in a scene like that. So it was very mind-blowing for me and I'm sure it was for the class as well. Um because it was, yeah, like you say, in plays and film, there, there's there's moments and scenes like that all the time. But we, I think we do consciously try to avoid that within improv. And there's there's really no need for it all the time. Well, and, you know, in my upbringing, we didn't avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, re- I remember a scene where I was in a rowboat. It was it, part of a format called the uh, Family Game. And uh, uh, the basic premise is I've arrived at this house uh, to spend a weekend with my partner's family and nobody knows where he is. And uh, so one of the uncles goes, oh, I think he's he's over on the island. Uh, I'll I'll take you over there. Great. So I get in this rowboat and as we're rowing across, this fog rolls in and this music comes up and it's very clear that this family just takes these girlfriends to this island and they never return. It was very clear that I was in a serial killer story. (laughs) And I had no hope. And you could feel the audience. Like I'm looking forward to the island and I'm trying to talk this guy into turning around and I'm checking my phone and all this stuff. And there's no hope. And I could see people in the front row as the boat came closer to the front of the audience, they were pushing their back into their seat, really? trying to get away from us. Oh, yeah. Wow. And then the lights slowly come down, and there's just this beat of silence, and the lights come up, and then myself and the person in the boat stand up and kind of do a little happy jig. <laughs> to kind of go, good, story done. And the audience can feel that tension in that moment and then we can release it just like with laughter we can build up to a laughter and then breathe afterwards theater exists within all emotions yeah um myself and uh another loose mooser uh derek flores um we created a show with liam amor and rama nicholas um that was called doctor uh sorry uh, what was it called? Mr. Fish and his spooky library of the Impro Macabre. Of course, of course it was. Of course it was. <laughs> and our tagline was, laughter is easy, fear is riskier. That's so true. And the, and the whole premise of the show was to tell kind of dark tales. So Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Brothers Grimm. And our aim was to build tension and release it and to build tension and release it. 
Wow, that would have been so interesting to watch. Uh, you know, for an audience member, it would have just been fascinating. Still some of those scenes that that linger in my memory. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of improvisation and I've, I'm so grateful to have done it. And I love my, you know, let's get out there and, and make them laugh, make them laugh. You know, I, I, I love putting my comedy pants on too, but I don't tend to remember those moments, but I tell you, Ooh, yeah. I remember when I had to plead to a court that when I sent my brother out into the forest and watched him be beheaded by a giant playing mantis, but I'm not mad and I didn't kill him. I remember that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not something that you forget about very easily, I don't think. (laughs) Mm -mm. And you've been artistic director for quite a few, like for multiple theatres. What was it like moving Mm. into more of a directorial position in improv? It was really fascinating. when so my my first artistic directorship was with a company in Toronto uh, that was called Dream Kitchen Theater. They're no longer a group. Um, they eventually the foundations of Dream Kitchen Theater evolved into uh, currently Bad Bad Dog Theater. Oh wow! Um, that's kind of yeah. That's like the seed eventually grew to that. And um, at the time that I was the artistic director. Uh, of Dream Kitchen Theatre, the company had never done notes. Uh, so the players weren't used to having post-show notes, which was such an integral part of of my experience at Loose Moose. Every show we did, every performance we did, you, you know, clean the stage, and then everybody meets in the theatre, and you do notes. You reflect on the show, right? Because if yeah. you have a creative goal as a group and you're creating an experience for an audience, I feel you you need that process to go, right, how do we do? What can we improve? How do we, how do we get better? What can we try? Well, I do that as a coach for teams as well. You know, I'll I'll go and watch Mm. their shows and I'll let them know what worked and what didn't work after and what they can develop and, you know, that kind of thing. Cause I feel it's more helpful to them because otherwise they're just treading water. They're not really going to develop as a group. Absolutely. Um, so this company in Toronto, they had never done notes. And um, within the dynamics of the company, um, there was a lot of dynamics, interpersonal dynamics. And people didn't know me that well. So I hadn't built up the trust within the players to be able to just say, right, we're doing notes. So after every show, you're sticking around for half an hour and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you notes. Um, <laughs> Because they, they were still like, okay, you, you, you come from a different company, and although we're a sister company of Loose Moose, we don't know you. So what I started to do was videotape the show, and then during the week, I would watch the show, and I would do individual notes, and I'd write them out. And I brought in a recipe box, you know, those little boxes that you put recipe cards in? Oh, know. yeah. People know what that, Yeah. And I had little envelopes, and everybody had their own personal envelope. And if you wanted notes from last week, you could come and get your envelope. And if you didn't, you didn't have to take them. Wow, I like that. That's a great approach. Uh, it was, uh, what I was trying to do was just to say, look, information is here. Mm. I'm not saying that I know everything, but here's some information if you want it. And, and how, did, and, ma- did many people take it or did many people leave it in the box? 
I was surprised how many people first took it. I think curiosity won out. Mm. And but then it eventually grew. And then I realized that weekly all the notes were going and I could see people were applying them on stage. And then I said to the company, look, it actually takes me a lot of time to do this and I'm happy to do it. But if people are up for it, I would like to just give notes on the night. And everybody was like, yeah, sure. So then we started doing notes, um, which was great. But I recognized, you know, I needed, I needed to, to win their trust because trust, we talk about trust in improvisation, and it is important that we trust each other. But trust is earned. Mm. You can say, all right, as a team, you know, as a company, as an ensemble, you're going to trust each other. And everybody will nod, but that doesn't mean the trust is there. Trust has to be earned. That's so true. It's so true. And, you know, it, it's, it's about respect as well, I suppose. If you're showing respect to the cast, the cast will show respect to the director. You know, it can't be this autocratic kind of situation where, you know, the director's dictating because then it just creates resentment between the, you know, the director and the cast and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Unless when you're asked to do the show, it is clear that that is the working dynamic of that show. Yeah, that's true. So if I want to do a show where I'm like, okay, I know exactly what I want and I'm, I need control and I'm going to invite people, I'm not going to say, hey, come and join this really collaborative free process and then say, right, here's what I want you to do. You've got to enter on this beat and do this thing and do that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because yeah. that's going to build resentment. I've lied to you. Um, you know, and if I say, look, it's going to be really sculpted and structured, and I'm looking for improvisers who can work within clear framework and find the joy within that, are you up for an adventure? Then you know what you're saying yes to. And if you say yes, then it's your job to commit. Um. But the honesty is really important, and and you have to earn the trust. Like you said, you know, if, if people just go, I know everything, then there's going to be people go, well, no, you don't, because the truth is you don't. You only know what you know. You've been artistic director. Is it three or four theaters now? Um, so artistic dream kitcher, and then I was artistic director of Rapid Fire Theater. Uh, and then I've been artistic director of Impro Melbourne twice, uh, and artistic director of Secret Impro Theatre, which is a kind of a a project that myself and Tim Redman um, started up, and it's kind of one of those back burner that might come to life again at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a little bit more title than an actual company. So legitimately three companies, but for, um, for AD, um, terms. And did you go into that with the same mentality of your teaching where you go and you meet the, the, the people of the theater, you see what, what's going on and then you work out how you're going to direct it? Or did you go in with a clear vision of what you wanted to bring there? Um, with, with Toronto, I was asked if I would. Um, 
And then when I said yes, I applied the same things I've talked about. So I looked at the group and I went, okay, Mm -hmm. artistically, what's needed in the show? Because they were playing theater sports. Um, But, you know, I can't come in from Loose Moose and say, I, you know, I know how to do it. Here's how to do it. You you, you do need to go, okay, what's happening here? And, And take that piece of the puzzle into consideration. Um, what are the fears? So if I started doing notes post-show, I would have triggered a lot of people's insecurity and ego, and that's not going to be helpful. They're not going to listen to the information. So which is why I made it private. So you could choose. And once people saw that I was trying to be helpful, I wasn't trying to get into any status battles or ego battles Mm. that I was actually about improving the work then maybe I could build that trust and earn that trust. And then we could start communicating as colleagues. Yeah. Which is what I felt happened. Um, maybe not for everybody. There might've been people I've pissed off. I'm sure I have. Um, you know, that's also part of the process. Yeah. You can only be your authentic self and not everybody's going to like that. Um, the same was true with, with, you know, rapid fire. Um, what's needed in the work and and how do we focus on that um and then when i moved to melbourne um the board asked me if i would step into the artistic director chair um the first time so it's you know i i've been entrusted um with these positions and i do feel that they're it it's it's a great gift to be given I had such an amazing mentor with Keith and with Dennis and with the rest of the original Moosers. Their faith, their support, their guidance, um, their playfulness, their opinions, their work, who they are as individuals, the experience that they created for me, the safety the availability, the possibility, the vibrancy. I just hope that when I'm AD of a company that I'm able to give some of that to the people that are in the company when I'm in that role. Because I benefited so much from people taking the time to think about me and to think about the work and to think about the environment. That if I've been able to do that for one or two other people where they have felt nurtured and inspired and supported, that their work has grown or blossomed because of that, then I'm really happy and I feel amply paid. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that's that's a great way of going into it and looking at it. Um. And you do uh, two prov with Joe Bill, who's obviously I do. from, from, <laughs> from IO Chicago. You know, what's it like performing with someone from like a, you know a totally different school of thought? Was it challenging to begin <laughs> with, or you know, how did that kind of form? We had a, an interesting first meeting. Um, we were both in Austin for a festival, and the first night of the festival at this big party. 
I had um, this improviser walk up to me and he looked at me and he went, so you're that Johnstone chick, eh? <laughs> what an intro. <laughs> and I went, well, uh, yeah, I've worked with Keith. And he went, huh, well, we'll see what you got. And he walked away from me. And I thought, wow, okay, right. If this is the way this community operates, it's not my community. And then people were kind of going, oh, you know, Patty worked with Keith and Joe worked with Dell. And what's going to happen when we have a Johnstonian student and a, a Closian? What's the closite? Do you know what? I've a never closier? I've never pondered that. So you, you can call it whatever you like. A, a closiest? A closer. I don't know. Uh, a closer. <laughs> and we learned after that people were actually like, what's going to happen when the two of them meet? Well, what happened was Joe walked up to me and he went, I'm Joe. And I said, oh, hey, I'm Patty. And he went, you want a beer? And I went, sure. And he came over with a six pack and we sat in a corner and we talked for like three hours and became great friends. That's what happened. Oh, I thought Joe was the guy who walked up to you and went, so you're the Johnstonian chick. No, <laughs> oh, no, okay. no, no, no. I thought, no. Why, what, what an introduction. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, wow. That was so, just some, some young improviser. So, so it was quite but, casual when you first met. Yeah, because whatever... Whatever way you come to improvisation and whatever aim you have for the work and whatever work you want to create, great. <laughs> it exists. Do your thing. I, I don't have the right to say if your work should or shouldn't be because it exists. It just is. Now, if you're asking me what I like and don't like, what are my preferences, what are my aims, how do I view the community, that's a different discussion because that's about my artistic visions and values and what I like in theater and what I'm aiming for. Yeah. But that doesn't criticize, belittle, or lift your work. Your work is your work. Yeah. Your world is your world. We can coexist in the same space and be complete opposites. That's fine. That's, you know, classical and punk. Like, they're music. It's okay. We don't have to fight on the same hill. Do your deal. Um, but I think people keep wanting to say we're the best for some sort of you know, mythical gold star. There is no best because one audience is going to like it and another audience isn't. What what you do in, in a, a pub at a college in the U.S. may not be what a, a theater audience in Berlin wants to see. Yeah. Yeah. So just do what inspires you. Um, 
so of course when Joe and I met, it, we weren't people that trained with these great teachers. We were two improvisers meeting at a festival. We're people. I'm, Improvisation I'm, is what we do. Yeah. Who are you? Let me meet. Who are you? Where did where did you grow up? Do you have any siblings? What do you like? What music do you listen to? Who are you? Let's make friends. <laughs> <laughs> and when you perform together, did, did you find that the two different schools of thought kind of collided, or did you think that they complemented one another in terms of your you, yours and his performance? Look, Del Close actually invited Keith Johnstone to come work with his students. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Keith is actually quoted in Truth and Comedy. Do you know what's interesting? I went, uh, When I studied at I.O., I went to um, a talk, and it was with Charna Halpern and uh, quite a few Dell students. And I asked uh, in the class, you know, I said that in the U.K. and Europe, Keith Johnson is a big part of improv, as is Del Close. And I said, what were Dell's thoughts on Keith Johnson? And Charna and they all they all were unanimous and said that Dell had a lot of respect for Keith and um like loved uh Impro, the first book, and you know, agreed with a lot of what was said in the book and that kind of thing. So it seemed like there was a huge amount of respect between the two. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um Keith uh in the in a conversation I had with Keith about Dell, you know, Keith uh, would talk about some of Dell's theories and what he was trying to achieve and some of the exercises. And, you know, he was interested in, in them and, and you know, um, thought what Dell was working on was interesting. They weren't fighting for this mythical gold star to define all impro. So why the hell is anybody else? So true. So true. But then, but that again, because they were curious about the work, they weren't, trying to defend their, you know, claim on the stock market, right? This is this is all a result of this capitalization of improvisation instead of connecting to the artistic form. Um, so when Joe and I, we, did, we decided to do uh, our play, and it came out of going, all right, there's a lot of students who think that someone who worked with Dell and someone who worked with Keith can't work with each other. Let's have some fun with that. Let's do a show. And let improvisers come and see, can these two people work together? And our first performance was at the Würzburg Festival in Germany. And the uh, blurb for the show was basically that. Joe worked with Dell. Patty worked with Keith. Can they work with each other? <laughs> Love that. And the show sold out. I'm not surprised. And we're looking at each other going, seriously, there's all these other shows on, and we've got a room full of improvisers curious if two improvisers can work together? Really? <laughs> okay. Um, so Joe and I decided that uh, the first half of the show he would put me through a Chicago experience. Mm -hmm. And then the second half of the show, I would put him through a loose moose experience. So we'd have a bit of fun with what are these different schools of thought? And 
There was some stuff that he did that was not necessarily in my toolbox. Um, so, for example, he did um, a ghosting thing with me where he went on stage with two chairs and he sat down and he started talking to the empty chair as if I was there. And I was going, oh, right. Is this another character? No, this is my character. Should I be on stage? What the hell's going on? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But I was like, okay, cool. What's this? And I was watching and listening. And then he got up in the middle of the conversation. And I went, oh, there's an offer. It was clear. So I went in and sat down. And I went back to the beginning of the conversation and filled in my responses to everything he said. Oh, I love that. And as I was doing this, I caught Joe out of the corner of my eye off the side of the stage, looking at me really confused. And, and my brain went, oh, crap, I've just broken something. I don't know what I've done, but oh, well, I'm here now. Yeah. Let's see what happens. So after the show, I asked him, I said, look, I, I noticed that you had this expression. And he said, yeah. He said, normally what happens is. I would start the conversation and then you'd come in and continue the conversation from the other person's point of view. But you went back and filled in the gaps of what happened to the other person during that conversation. And I said, yeah, because what's the point of a conversation if you don't see the other person's reaction? So that was a moment that we both went, ah, so our schools are so similar and every now and then there's just a different perspective. I love just that. a different, I, I will go here and you might go there. Yeah. Um, so he'll, he'll follow something. Joe will follow any offer to Helen back. Like he, he will commit and commit and commit and commit. And it's joyous. At some point, I will go, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> but Joe may not do that. He might go, hey, man, this is jazz. We're playing it. And I'm going, get that. But jazz can be boring if the audience isn't involved. So why? <laughs> <laughs> but these are, these are these subtle things that come into the work. And neither's wrong. They just are. They're just different forms and they get different results. Yeah. So when we play together, the differences complement because it keeps us alive. And regardless of what school or teacher we have, we both had teachers who were trying to train people to be completely present in the moment without fear or anxiety to connect to the spontaneous moment, the impulse, to trust their impulse, to support, accept, offer, and develop without any idea of what the next step is, but to really commit to, the where, to what you are in. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing 
like you know, there's a lot of different theory and a lot of different background to the two methods but when you see there's so much crossover and it can you know essentially result in the same kind of beautiful thing happening on stage it's just it must have been incredible to watch for the audience um I, they they seem to like it but that's really a, a a question for them the second half of the show uh because the evening had run long i couldn't really do what i wanted to do to joe <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I ended up putting him into a scene where I beat him with a pillow, um, <laughs> which, which was just a, a training exercise. So, uh, Rama was in the audience and, and bless her. She, without knowledge, I said, would you come up and play? And she was like, yeah, okay. And, uh, and we just had Joe do a scene, but I think it was whenever the audience laughed, I would hit him with a pillow or, um, if he said something and, and it didn't inspire Rama, she would snap her fingers and I would hit him with a pillow. It was a training exercise that's very Keith mentality. Love that. That was been really fun. It was it was great fun. Watching Joe's face, like, why the hell am I getting hit with a pillow? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. But now when we perform, um, what we do is uh, every time we do our play, we set a different challenge or goal or we start somewhere different. Um, so there is no format. Uh, what we do is 10 minutes before the show, when we're backstage, we go, so what do you want to try? Nice. So, yeah. So we've done it where it's been the same story by three different directors. We've done a mono scene. We've done um, three chapters of a character's lives um we've done one which was just a lot of stupid characters um we did one just starting by looking at each other for a minute um so yeah it that's our our only goal and often if we're at a festival we'll ask each other what what is lacking in this festival so if the festival is really super funny if all the shows are big, bold comedies, we'll go somewhere else. If all the shows are more theatrical or genre-based, we'll go somewhere else. We, we try to bring a variation uh, to the, the festival table. Amazing. I'm definitely going to try and check you guys out whenever you're doing your next shows and uh, try and witness this. It'll be really interesting to watch. Um, Thank you. No, no, absolutely. And uh, you've got a new book out, uh, Improvise Freely. Yes. Um, so this is uh, going to be released this year. Amazing. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be uh, doing the pre-order date. Um, wow. I, you know, Keith was, it always seemed like Keith was writing a book at the Moose. And you'd ask him, you know, are you, how's it going? And he'd, oh. And I remember thinking, come on, it can't take that long to write a book. What's going on? <laughs> Oh my God, Keith! I am sorry for any time I ever thought that. I'm. I. I think I have to call him and apologize. Um, because it is the most extraordinary, bizarre thing to go through. Um, it's exciting and vulnerable, and confusing and empowering and clarity and it's just a whole bunch of stuff. You learn a lot about yourself. Um, the aim of the book is to promote 
thought and discussion um, by questioning some of the um, rules that people use in improvisation. Um, I, I don't believe that there are rules in improv. And so I'm having a, I'm, have, I'm saying, hey, let's have a look at these. Do they serve us or are there other options? Wow. I can't wait to read it. I'm really excited. Um... Yeah, like I said, I, I just, I really want to get, have people think. Because my experience at the Moose was one of wonder and one of complete openness of possibility. You know, and when I think of improvisation, it is free. It's free form. It's open. It's potential. Absolutely. And although I think a lot, I think a lot of the rules have a concept that's useful. The rule is not. Because yeah. the rule defines thought. Yeah, I, I feel like the rules are important in terms of like learning improv and developing, but I, I feel you do get to a point as a performer where it's, you know, I think it was Mick Napier who said, fuck the rules. So, like, yeah. you know, yeah, so you do have to kind of move on from that. But I argue that the rules are not even useful when you're learning. Ah. Because my first improv class was in a room of people who knew what they were doing and people like me who didn't. And I didn't start with, here's the concept of blocking. Here's the rule of blocking. Here's what we do and don't do. I was brought into a creative environment where people were talking creatively and building trust and working together to create. Let's explore. Let's discover. Let's challenge. And that is how I look at improvisation. That is how I teach, direct, play, and watch. And what I see are improvisers all over the world that come on stage exactly the same way. They use the exact same setup lines for games. They ask suggestions without even realizing why they're asking suggestion or whether or not a suggestion is even useful. They go through the routine that they were taught, but they're not creative artists. Yeah. They've never been empowered to invest their own creativity, their own imagination, to question, to explore. Dell, Keith, and Viola all explored. They all broke rules. They were all challenging the status quo. If we want this art form to grow, it doesn't grow by being confined. It grows by empowering people right from the start. Love that. That's so, so, so true. Well, Patty, I can't wait to read the book. I'm really, really excited now. I'm definitely going to book a copy and I'd recommend everybody else to as well. And, Thank uh, you. No, no, genuinely. And uh, Patty, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. I could talk to you all day. It's been absolutely fascinating and so much fun. Thank you again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're a real charming host and it's a delight to talk to you. And thanks for everybody who's listened this far. <laughs> oh, thanks, Patty. I really appreciate that. Well, come here. Um, hopefully I will see you in the not too distant future when the world calms down a little bit and uh, hopefully get to see you on stage and maybe do a workshop with you at some point. But look after yourself and hopefully see you soon. 
Thank you. And take care of yourself. And to everybody listening, please stay safe, well, and hold on to hope. Ah, that was lovely. I really, really enjoyed that. It was so nice chatting to Patty. Definitely check out her book, guys, Improvise Freely. It's out now. I'm actually reading it at the moment, and I'm loving it. It's fantastic. Definitely, definitely check that out. And also, if you get the opportunity to do a workshop with Patty, I would highly recommend it. She is a fantastic teacher. And if you get a chance to perform, definitely do it. She is such a great improviser as well. Well, that's it for this week, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Big shout out as always to Crowander for the theme music space fun. And I'll see you next week. Have a good one, guys. Bye.